given to John on the Isle of Patmos, verse 11 of chapter 19. As he opened the book, he saw the heavens open and a white horse. And the one that sat upon this white horse was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he had a name that is written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, and they are following him on the white horse. And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword that will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will then tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Then verse 16 says this, And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen, that right there should make you shout. That right there should make you shout. The famed American pastor, Dr. S.M. Lockridge, once said in a sermon entitled, That's My King. He said, my king was born king. The Bible says he is the seventh way king. He is the king of the Jews. He is a racial king. He is the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. So that being said, let's stand for the king and the reading of the word. Let's stand together. With our Bibles turned to Mark chapter 11, verse 1, with a sermon entitled, The King is Here. And when they, the disciples, that is, drew to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say that the Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. And they went away and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of them were standing there and said to them, what are you doing untying that colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Let's say that together. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word and the word to our heart and mind. You may be seated. Not long ago, we remembered the day when Jesus came riding to the streets of Jerusalem 
on the back of a donkey. Sometimes this is what is referred to the beginning of Holy Week. It's also known as Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And to this day, I don't believe that scholars have really come to find why this was such a triumphant event. I mean, the streets were filled with sinners that no doubt a little less than a week would be shouting not only Hosanna here, but then saying crucify him just a little bit later. And so why is it triumphant? What makes this entry triumphant? I think that we can conclude that it is triumphant simply because of the sovereignty of Jesus and his foreknowledge of upcoming events, and yet he marched ever closer clinging to the cross. The image is Jesus clenching and clinging to the cross is the passion. It's triumphant because of His majesty as Messiah. And by the plain and yet complex declaration of Hosanna that rang through the streets. Hosanna! But something was happening in history that was profound, very, a very profound happening on the landscape of history, that a simple profession of faith would not do. A simple hosanna would not do. And the same applies today. See, we can say that we are a follower of Jesus and I hope that's the case for you. But somewhere in our walk, he must become Lord. And we must submit to his lordship and then demonstrate whether we are a follower of Jesus as Lord or simply a fan. Are we a follower of Jesus? Or simply someone who just likes the name of being called a Christian? Do we truly know down within our heart and our mind? Do we truly know, love, and serve the King? Right? For our wanna clubbers, you know that reference, right? Do we know, love, and serve the king? Or are we following at a distance? And today's sermon will address the kingship or lordship of Jesus and how culture can so easily turn the actions of well-meaning people towards complacency and apathy. I say to the church today, it's time for the church of the living God who is in Christ Jesus, who is moved by the power of the Holy Spirit to come out of complacency and come out of apathy and start serving Jesus like he's going to return at any moment. I can say I'm a Christ follower, but unless my actions follow suit, then maybe I'm like the people in the street here who are simply calling out to Jesus as king, as a descendant of David. So let me ask you, and this is kind of a, a weird question to think about at first, 
But as we look at these verses before us, I must ask you, where is your colt? You say, well, I don't have a donkey, preacher. <laughs> Symbolically speaking, what would be your colt? Or where is your colt? Let me explain. Jesus and his disciples were almost to Jerusalem. In verse 1, it says that they were passing through Jericho, and they were now at Bethany, which was near the Mount of Olives. This is where Bethphage or Bethphage would begin and Bethany ended. And from their position, they can look out over the Mount of Olives and they can look down and they can see Jerusalem. Jerusalem was an eye shot of them. So Jesus and company were positioned just two miles from Jerusalem. And I began to think about this. I was like, well, they're two miles away. Would they still be able to see Jerusalem? Yes, on that high mountain range, they would be able to see Jerusalem. And I thought about the time when we went offshore fishing one time, and we were about three miles off the shore and yet could still see land. So yes, it certainly makes sense. They looked down over the Mount of Olives, and they look down into the city of Jerusalem. This, this looming death of our Lord is just right around the corner. And just a few days before the Passover, Jesus sends two of his disciples before the group to fetch a donkey that had never been ridden before. In fact, verse 2, he says, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter into, you will find a colt that is tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. So here's our Lord Jesus in his foreknowledge and in his might, in his humanity and yet divinity simultaneously. He is God, divine and human together in the same essence at the same time. Full of foreknowledge and might, he directed his disciples, and what he expected from them was obedience. Obey the Lord, because his will is righteous. So, he has been right so far in all that he has commanded his disciples to do. He has been right in every turn, every place they have gone, everything that he has taught them, Everything that he has de demonstrated about himself has been right thus far, so why not trust him further? Has the Lord been good to you? Why not trust him further? Amen. So as far as the donkey is concerned, they, they were not to be used in sacred ceremony, and the one, on the, only the ones that, that could have been used were the ones where no one had ever sat upon. So the question does arise. We're reading this and we're thinking from the mind of the disciples. And any time you read God's word, I would, I would advise you to interject yourself into the story. Who do we identify more in this narrative? And I would say to you, we would say, we would identify probably in this discourse more with the disciples. And so there might be a question that arises. How did they know which donkey? How did they know? Where exactly would they find it? And chances are, this was the only one tied up in this fashion. Jesus says, if, you, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and they will send it back immediately. So if we are like the disciples here, I could imagine we would be like, 
What in the world, Lord? Find a donkey? We would probably have all kinds of questions to ask. Although the text does not say that they had questions, we would probably be pondering how would we know. Not only is Jesus sending them to a specific place where there is a specifically tied donkey, but also to a specific person or persons who will know who the Lord is. So it's all God-ordained. It's all been shaped by the Master's hands. Your life has been shaped by the Master's hands. This person will associate the Lord Jesus to the disciples who are now looking to borrow the cult. See, we serve a God that is a God of order. We serve a God who is a God of specifics. If you were to glance, even just casually, at the universe and the cosmos before us, you would say that there is an intricate level of design of the world around us. Not only is there intricate design in the world, there is intricate design in the kingdom of God. We serve a God of order and specifics and a Lord who desires that we also know His will and His purposes. That is the, that's the beauty of the God we serve. Everything that we have belongs to Him anyways. The donkey tied up, my truck that needs some suspension work, <laughs> belongs to Him. Everything that we have, it belongs to Him anyway. And on occasion, He blesses us with resources. God blesses us with resources only so that we can multiply them and then to use them for his glory. Why do you think that God has blessed people to be able to play the organ, play the piano, to be able to sing? Why do you think that's the case? So we can offer it back to Him as praise and adoration. To give it back to Him and to use it and then to multiply it so it might be used again. But the next few steps demonstrate the disciples following through the commands of our Lord. Now, the Bible doesn't say that they were disoriented or dull or anything on this. The Bible just says they simply went. It is also a case where the Lord would exhibit the supernatural power of His foreknowledge and His Lordship. In verse 4 it says, They went away and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. There is no doubt in my mind that this is the colt. Okay, as the disciples come up on it, it's kind of like this thought, you'll know it when you see it. You ever been asked somebody, you know, you ask directions from somebody and they say, well, when you get there, you'll know it when you see it. This is kind of one of those moments, you'll know it when you see it. As some of them standing there said, well, what are, what are you doing on tying the colt? They go and grab the colt. And in Luke's gospel, these bystanders are called the owners. So in his gospel, the gospel account of Luke, they are the owners. In verse 6 it says, And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. You need to remember that Jesus, his fame had spread through the region of Jerusalem, through Galilee, through Bethsaida, through Bethany, now back to Jerusalem again, all on the outskirts of of, the, of Galilee, so his fame had spread, and no doubt this person was a friend to Jesus. 
Here are the disciples fulfilling exactly what the Lord sent them to do. You know, in this regard, I would say, hey, I want to be like the disciples. I want to be obedient to the Lord's command, even if I might not like them at first. These are people who have not fully experienced the beauty of the risen Christ. And here they are following through the commands of Jesus. This is one of the occasions where the disciples are seen to immediately follow the Lord. So why is it hard for us to commit to the Lordship of Jesus? We say that we are in Christ and we have the indwelt Holy Spirit within us, and yet it is difficult for many of us to follow through and commit to the Lordship of Christ. I ask you at the beginning of this of these verses. I ask you this question. In fact, it was the first point that I wanted to raise. I ask you this question, what is your cult? Or who is your cult? Where have you placed your cult? Or where in your life as a Christ follower can you identify that cult? And what I mean by that, what is that one thing? What is that one place? What is that person in your life that the Lord used to draw you closer to Him? What is the one thing that seemed as if it was specifically designed for you? What was that one time in your walk with the Lord as you said, that had to be God moving and speaking to me? What is the one thing that seemed to be specifically designed for you? Let me ask you this, a little bit, digging in a little bit, a little bit closer in. Do you remember hearing the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and hearing how He loves you and died for you as a sinner? And do you remember thinking, He did all that for me? Do you ever remember thinking that? He did this for me. You can hear the gospel a thousand times. You can hear the gospel as a Christ follower thousands and thousands of times in your life and it should hit the same. It was said of this donkey that no person had sat upon it. It's kind of like if you think through the Old Testament narrative, you think about the, the big whale. Jonah and the whale. You think about this, this whale that was specifically made, this, or big fish. It was made for the purpose of swallowing up Jonah, spinning him up on the land of Nineveh, and him going as a missionary to the people of Nineveh. Made specifically for swallowing Jonah. And this cult was made specifically to bear the load of the Savior. So what is that one event? One person that God used to draw you to Him or to draw you closer. And if you can identify a person, you need to thank them today. Thank you, Lord, for using so-and-so, whoever it might be, to help me draw closer to you. There might be a moment in your life that God used. Thank Him for that today. What can we learn from the disciples? We learn obedience. What can we learn from a simple donkey? That the Lord can use you. Wherever you're at. God can use you. Old, young, whatever it might be. God can use you now. Today the Lord wants 
you for his church. Let me say that again. Today the Lord wants to use you for his church and for his kingdom. For the church is a family. I believe the church is a family. He wants you for his work. Not that he needs your tithes or your offerings or your money because God doesn't need your dollar, but he wants you to give freely to build kingdom principles as an act of obedience and an act of worship. If it be your skill and talent to sing, to play music, or to preach, or to teach, use it for the Lord. If it be your skill or talent to, to sing or whatever it might be, the Lord wants that too. I'll never forget how someone that I know was obedient to the Lord Jesus and his command to make disciples. And because of him being malleable in God's hands, shared the gospel with me. I heard the gospel and was saved. Not much is said of this, of this donkey, but it proves the providential hand of God is always active. All we have to do is look to see. God is always at work. He is always at work in our lives. And we, we, we all have those people, those places and things that the Lord used in his perfect time to draw us closer to himself. In this case, it was a simple donkey that demonstrated that God has everything in our lives planned. Sir Isaac Newton famously uttered these words. He says, yet one thing secures whatever betide the scripture assures us that the Lord will provide. So we ask this question, where, what, who is your cult? Who is that one person, place, or thing in your life that God used to draw you to himself? And then we ask this question, who is your Lord? Who is your Lord? Verse 7 says, and they brought the cult to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. The disciples are now being obedient to the Lord. They brought this cult to Jesus and they put their coats on its back or their cloaks. And so in a grammatical sense and also a symbolic sense, the antecedent for they who brought the cult could be both the disciples and the friends of the Lord who loaned him the cult. Verse 8 says, And many that were there in the city, they spread their cloak on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. So Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. Again, we would have focused on this during Holy, Holy Week, right? The triumphant entry. And many had spread their coats on the ground, and they had cut branches from palm trees, according to John's Gospel. This, this, this uh, purposeful behavior that was on the account of Jesus could have but one meaning. Why did Jesus do what he did in Jerusalem? Why did he ask for a cult? Why did he ask his disciples 
to be obedient. This was Jesus' public declaration of himself as Messiah. And even though he didn't utter the words and say, I'm Messiah, he fulfilled prophecy by doing so. It was his declaration. As blind Bartimaeus called out to Yeshua, the son of David, now he demonstrates it. You have to remember that the crowds that were part of that transaction with blind Bartimaeus were no doubt some of the people that would have followed him into Jerusalem and would have heard blind Bartimaeus say, Yeshua, son of David are now saying things very similar. In fact, there was two proclamations that were issued by the crowd in verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a reflection of a Psalm 118 verse 26. What they were in essence saying was, God save us with an urgency, as to say, God save us now. They knew that Jesus was demonstrating himself as David and as, well, as the lineage from David and as the Messiah. And then they also declared in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Remembering the promise that there will not be a time in history of history where David's lineage will not sit upon the throne in one way, shape, or form. And Jesus fulfills this Hosanna in the highest, which is a messianic declaration. Much like was said with blind Bartimaeus who called Yeshua the son of David, and it was a messianic proclamation. So now David, the father of David, Hosanna in the highest, is also a messianic proclamation. Then in verse 11, he entered into Jerusalem, he went into the temple. When he had looked around at everything, it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So now he peeks out of the city. Next week, we'll see Jesus as he encounters a fig tree. As you read ahead in the Gospel of Mark, I consider these next sections that we will cover in the next, uh, the next couple of weeks as what I call a Markian sandwich. At the beginning are the top pieces of that bread, right? The top and the bottom piece of that bread. Jesus' transaction in the city of Jerusalem. And right in the middle of that is some of the meat where Jesus begins to look at the, at the fruit of Israel and compares it to that of the fig tree. Then Jesus will come and will cleanse the temple. So right in the middle of this sandwich is some meat, and hopefully we'll be able to digest that in a couple, in a couple of weeks as we dig deeper into God's Word. But it is important to remember these proclamations. Two that were uttered, maybe one sentence, maybe two, but they said... Very similar things. As they entered into the city, and they had been following Jesus from Bethany, but the vast majority of the people in this crowd will also seek our Lord to be crucified. I try to place myself in this predicament. I try to place myself amongst this crowd. These are people who have been oppressed in more ways than I am today, and you as well. 
And so I pr- try to interject my, myself into the narrative and, and try to understand the, the context. They prayed to God for a Messiah. They prayed for a deliverer. That, and, and God sends his son. And they, didn't, they did not like the way the prayer was answered. They wanted a political Messiah who would rule right then and there and overthrow Rome. That's even reflected in the disciples that ask, can one sit on the right and one the left? And so they seek to kill his son. And if that is not a demonstration of depravity, I do not know what what is. Even amongst us, God does not we, we would say that God does not answer the prayer that we like in the way that we like and in the time that we want him to answer it in. And, and we throw a little fit and, and as if God owes us anything at all. Now, I believe God answers prayer because he is long-suffering, he is patient, he is loving. He is either Lord over all or not at all in your life. And I know he is Lord over all. So again, who or what is your Lord? If Jesus is not Lord, then something else is. Just a quick note, these people in just a few, week, a few days or so, not even a week's time, are a picture of human depravity and sin. And guess what? We are right there in the crowd. So the question I ask today, should have some fruit to bear, right? I want to bear fruit in the, in the kingdom of Christ. Do you? I want to bear fruit. I want to be like that donkey that was used for a couple of things. To explore the disciples' obedience. It was used as an object lesson. Not only that, I mean, not only was it to bear the, the load of the Savior in the street, but it was also used to explore the disciples' obedience and, to, and then to bear the Savior. But I want to be like the cult for someone today. That voice of reason, that, that, that perfect setting in, in the storm. That voice of reason or comfort in a time of, of a storm in their lives. I want to be like that for someone. The second way to bear fruit is as such. If I proclaim Jesus as Lord over my life, then, then I should see kingdom growth. I should see in some way, I should see the kingdom impacted in some way. For instance, I should see those around me comforted or drawing closer to Jesus. I should see my family growing together as a worshiping family. And not only my immediate family, but my church family. I should see a growing together of a worshiping family. We should see fruit in our lives if we say that Jesus is indeed king of my life. If the king is here and present, if he is imminent in your life, if he is ruling and reigning in your life, then there must be fruit to bear. In 1913, Maude Frazier, most of us, we know the name Fanny Crosby or you know, names that we can identify as people who write hymns but there was one kind of obscure name 
that I just recently read about, 1913, Maude Frazier wrote a song entitled, He Wants a Poor Sinner Like Me. The words of this song remind us of how the Lord wants us to submit to His total lordship over our life. If the king is here, then he wants us to submit to his lordship. Listen to these these words. Listen to this line. It says, yes, he wants by his hand now to hold me. And with his mighty love to enfold me. Yes, he wants me to stay in his presence always. He wants a poor sinner like me. I don't know if you've ever heard that song or have read those words, but it does remind us today. The Lord wants total rule in your life. He wants to rule as Lord over your life. And yes, we sang the song, The King is Coming, and one day He is coming. One day the Lord is going to come and He is going to take His people to be with Him forever and ever to worship. And what a glorious time that will be through all eternity. But the King is also here. He lives in the hearts and minds of His people. And hopefully He is ruling and reigning in your life. And I want some fruit to bear. How about you? How about you? Let's pray together, shall we?